Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, do you ever have any doubts about Christianity? Are you certain that Christianity is true? By the way, do you have to be certain, 100% certain, in order to be a Christian? And by the way, if there is a God, why isn't he more obvious? Aren't people just out there crying, God, where are you? If, if you do exist, show yourself to me. And then the heavens appear to be silent. I mean, God could just show up and make sure that everyone knows he exists. Why doesn't he do that? Well, today we're going to talk about it with Dr. Travis Dickinson, his brand new book, Wandering Toward God, Finding Faith Amid Doubts and Big Questions. Travis has his PhD from the University of Iowa. He teaches philosophy at Dallas Baptist University. And the coolest thing about him is he's from New Jersey. Right. How are you doing, Travis? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Right now we are in Denver, Colorado at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. And it's great to see people here. It's great having Travis here actually in person. Travis, this book, Wandering Toward God, why'd you write it? Well, I do you think, have any doubts? Well, I do, I, and I <laughs> certainly have uh, along the way. And yeah, it really comes out of my own journey. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, I think part of me thinks that uh, I, I see kids and, and people in my life and uh, others who are just being beat up by doubts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't like that. And I wanted to help uh, sort of help those guys out. But also some people don't doubt enough, I think. Mm -hmm. And so... I think it's worth approaching these issues and encouraging people to ask the big questions. That's really what I'm after. I'm not after anybody doubting. Um, I think that doubt can be a really valuable experience, um, but I don't want anybody to stay there. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are people, there are voices out there that are, in, are encouraging the deconstruction and doubt and as if that's the arrival place. And I want to say that doubt's not the destination, but it is a valuable experience. And so just asking those questions Likely there'll be some uh, intellectual tension as, as we go. And mm -hmm. so leaning into that um, really is, leads us to truth, leads now, us to knowledge. Now, how do you define doubt? So I define doubt. So there's a lot of manifestations of doubt mm -hmm. and we can get sort of bogged down in trying to characterize all of it. So what I do in the book is I try to get it down to what I call the core of mm -hmm. doubt. Um, and I think of doubt in its core so it can manifest, I think, in emotions and, you know, sort of an emotional experience of doubt. But I really think at its core, it's a kind of intellectual tension. Uh, so I'm kind of happy with that as a definition. But the way I put it in the book is to say that it's when one of our belief, beliefs seems like it may be false. Just mm -hmm. that experience. It, and, mm -hmm. and so that's why it's not... I say it's not a choice that we make, um, typically, if we could not doubt or doubt, uh, most of us are going to choose to not doubt, um, but doubts sort of happen to us. We just sort of start to might be challenged by somebody or some question or just wrestling in our own journey, and uh, one of our beliefs starts to seem like it might be false. We're in the place of doubt. Now, you and I grew up in a 
close, relatively close to one another. You probably, I don't know, 20 miles from where I grew up in kind of central New Jersey near the shore. You grew up in Tom's River. I grew up in Neptune. For me, I was brought up in the Catholic church. That's just where uh, so many people uh, in New Jersey wind up. They wind up in the Catholic church just due to what their parents were. How about you? What's what's your history? Yeah, so I grew up in a uh, ministry set. I was a ministry kid Uh and uh, I say like my whole life was just dominated uh, by Christianity. So it was living in a, a big property that uh, of, of everybody there was Christian, going to Christian school, going to church on Sunday, uh, you know, that whole, whole package. So, but mm-hmm. it, it was an evangelical, you know, and, and I, I love my heritage. I, I struggled with it. I haven't always loved it, but uh, I really have come to just cherish, you know, my background that way. But it, it, I, I, it, it, I just sort of made a lot of assumptions, though, too, mm, mm. about the truth of Christianity, because my whole world was... I didn't even know there were non-Christians for a while, <laughs> you know, which is is noteworthy in New Jersey. Right, exactly. Of, well, know. it was your great-great-grandfather that started a ministry there many yeah. years ago. What was that? So it's a it's called America's Keswick, and it's an addiction recovery center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, when I was growing up, it was just for men to come... They would come in just brutalized by addiction, just skinny and, you know, just really in dark places. And as a kid, I would just watch them be transformed by the gospel. Is really looking back. I just, of course, didn't mm-hmm. realize it at the time, but um, it was a really powerful apologetic for me to just watch that transformative, um, ex- you know, experiences that they went through. And that recovery ministry is still going? Still going. Still going strong. Wow. Now, what were some of your initial doubts that caused you to doubt that Christianity was indeed true. Yeah, so I, I went through, again, all of that sort of Christian setting. I did everything, you know, Sunday school, youth group, retreats, mission trips. I've been to uh, around 40 countries doing international mission trips and uh, all of that stuff. And it wasn't until I was sitting in a seminary classroom, like preparing for ministry myself. And it, I think, it, as, as I recall, it was a... Um, it was kind of a, a religious studies course that was taking at Talbot Seminary. And I, it, it just felt like we were giving Christianity a pass. We were criticizing these other religions mm-hmm. and just, you know, giving them the, the what for. Uh, and just giving, and it was probably just me that was giving Christianity a pass in some ways. But it really kind of threw me into this place of to say, I, I've grown up with this. So of course, you know, that's the reason why I, I, I wasn't, I, I realized that I wasn't embracing Christianity because I saw that it was true, I was embracing Christianity because it's what I grew up with. So what were you or the people you were studying with giving Christianity a pass on that you thought you weren't giving other religions a pass on? Well, I think, you know, it's kind of that way in which we can look at other views and sort of have a mocking tone Uh and just sort of say, look how ridiculous this belief is that, you know, so-and-so believes and, and we all chuckle and, you know, right. pat each other on the back. I think it was that sort of conversation that was coming up a mm-hmm. little bit. Then for whatever reason, I, I don't think that's a, you know, the most, uh, you know, hard hitting uh, objection to Christianity, but it just felt like, it, it, I think what it revealed in my own journey is that I just had not really criticized and scrutinized. I'd never really asked why I think Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. So it was more kind mm. of an attitude that people had. I think like, so. Oh, 
How yeah. could the Mormons believe what they right. believe, or the right. Muslims believe what they believe, right. or, yeah, or the atheists believe yep. what they believe? Yep. I think we do this in politics too, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, like, how could the Democrats believe what right. they believe? And I saw some some Democrats. How could the Republicans believe what they? You know, we just kind of have this this dismissiveness. kind of dismissiveness, yeah. and wow, we know everything, yeah. and you don't, and yeah, that that can infect anybody yeah. actually. So, was there any argument you thought that didn't? work for Christianity? Were you doubting the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus or what was it? No, it was really just at that time, it was just realizing that I didn't have good reasons to believe it was true. Oh, okay. And so then, I, and you know, Talbot's a pretty great place to doubt your faith in some sure. ways, because there's a lot of great folks around there that I'll uh, walk you through it, though. I, I just had to lean in myself. I, I didn't have people that I necessarily reached out and talked to, but I just had to research it. And I think what, where I came out was to see that Christianity has always prized truth. Mm -hmm. It's it's always been because it is true you should believe. Mm -hmm. And I you know I think First Corinthians fifteen where Paul talks about that if the resurrection didn't happen then you know our faith is in vain, right. which implies that we shouldn't believe it if we come to see that it's not true. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other religions, especially the more Eastern sorts of religions, like truth doesn't even really come up. It's more what works for you or just, you know, kind of do, does it provide a way of life that you mm -hmm, enjoy mm -hmm, or something mm -hmm. to that effect. Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to, I'm going to ask Travis about certainty because I think a lot of people struggle with certainty. Are you 100% sure Christianity is true? And is that really the mark we're aiming for? That it is 100%. Do you have to be 100% certain? Do you have that kind of knowledge? Do you, are you 100% certain about almost anything is the question. So we're going to cover that when we come back. We're talking to Travis uh, Dickinson, his brand new book, Wandering Toward God, Finding Faith Amid Doubts and Big Questions. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where the Evangelical Theological Society is meeting. We're back in just two minutes, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with the D on the end of it. We're talking to Travis Dickinson, Dr. Travis Dickinson, his brand new book, Wandering Toward God. It has to do with doubts and certainty and where is God in the midst of pain and suffering and why is any more obvious questions like that? We're going to get to some of these questions as we move forward. Let's start with certainty, Travis. Yeah. Uh, what is the bar that we should, where should we set the bar yeah. with regard to Christianity? Do we have to be 100% certain that Christianity is true to be a Christian? I hope not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I've got questions, and mm -hmm. I, I would bet your, your uh, audience has a lot, they have sure. a lot of questions, yeah. as we all do. And so if, if we have to have absolute 100% certainty, then I think we're probably all in trouble in a way. No matter what worldview you have. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether you're an atheist, you, you don't have all the answers either, right? That's right. And is there a, is there a distinction between having a doubt and having a question? Because we're never going to yeah. run out of questions. Right. That's for sure. Right. I think so. I, I do think that those are, I, I think we, like I say, I, I want people to be asking the questions. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily want them to be doubting. I just think having some doubts as you go is very, very normal. And, I, and whenever I get the opportunity, I, I want to tell people, you know, that are out there that if they are in that place of doubt, then they're very, very normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and we haven't made church, uh, our church is oftentimes a safe place to doubt their, you know, people's, for them to doubt their faith and that sort of a thing. So I want them to know they're very normal. But yeah, I do think there's a distinction, right? So just asking questions may not 
create doubts, but to be unsure of what to say, then you don't have absolute certainty. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we tell our kids, especially, I've got four kids, my oldest is uh, 16, uh, and you know, it's if we tell our kids that you have to have an absolute 100% certainty, and then they find themselves on a college campus somewhere or someplace where they're being challenged on their faith and they realize they don't have absolute certainty, then the whole thing comes mm-hmm. crashing down like a house of cards. And so uh, what I say instead is what we should aim at is just confidence, rational confidence, because confidence can handle our questions. Cons- confidence can sort of tolerate uh, a season and period of doubt. Um, and that's, that's really what we can get to this, where the the philosopher, uh, comes out in me a little bit in the book is that, uh, right. This, this idea of certainty, we just realize isn't, we can't have that for almost anything we Mm -hmm. believe. Right. So, so long as there's the possibility of being wrong, you don't have certainty. So Mm -hmm. long as you have a question or two, you don't have certainty. Mm -hmm. And so I think we just don't find ourselves there. And I think it's reflected in, um, well, in, in 1 Corinthians um, 13, 12, where Paul talks about seeing through a glass dimly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we kind of, like, that's a, it's a really strong sort of epistemological statement that our, our knowledge of the world is like a pale reflection mm. uh, or a dim reflection. And so, of course, we're limited. That's the way the Bible sees us all. So how, how in the world are we ever going to get to that place where we're 100% absolutely certain? And who needs it anyway? Mm. We don't live our lives that way. That's right. right? You're driving down the street. You're coming over a hill uh, on one lane each way. You, you're not absolutely certain there's not a car in the wrong lane coming toward you right. about to collide with you head right. on. But you drive as if, no, there's not going to be a car right. coming on the wrong side of the road colliding with me as I come over right. this crest. <laughs> You just live life as if you have enough information to make decisions about life, even life and death decisions. Absolutely. Even though you're not 100 completely, 100% completely certain. I'm not 100% completely certain this hotel in which we're sitting right now right. is not going to fall down right. in the next 10 seconds. It might, right? right? But right. we live life as if we have enough evidence to suggest it hasn't fallen down in the past 20 years. Right. It probably is not going to do right. it. We can today. be confident it's right. not going to fall down. Right. Yeah. Uh, now... When it comes to, uh, well, let me put it this way. We're always going to have questions. We're never going to become infinite in our knowledge. So right. certainty isn't the standard. Oh, Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, who uh, we saw here today oh, or yeah. yesterday at ETS, makes a distinction between showing your faith is true and knowing your faith is true. And he, of course, knowing for him doesn't mean absolute certainty either. Right. Uh, do you buy into that distinction that there might be the witness of the Holy Spirit that can help you know it's true? Even if you don't, even if you can't show that to other people. Yeah. So pro- probably a more technical discussion uh-huh. than you probably want to have right now. Yeah. But I, I am critical of that approach uh-huh. uh, because he ends up sort of embracing a sort of externalism uh-huh. uh, and saying that, you know, we don't have to have necessarily evidence. So I, I end up uh-huh. being an evidentialist um, uh-huh. about everything. So uh-huh. I think we have to have good reasons and good evidence to be rational and and ultimately being rational, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, if our beliefs are true, uh, Mm -hmm. is knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a distinction, though, of course, between knowing something's true and showing. So there's a lot of evidence that I think we have that is private. So like our, many times like religious experience would be a private experience. Right. It's not something that's going to be evidence. If I have a religious experience, it won't be evidence for you necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe my testimony about it, but you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to even put those things into words. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
that would be figure into my knowing it's true, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't necessarily be very helpful for me showing that it's true. Mm -hmm. So I think the more, you know, you know, formal arguments and maybe scientific evidence and some of those things uh, are just more useful for showing people that, that Christianity is true. Now, in your experience, you're dealing with students all the time. What are the areas uh, that cause them to doubt Christianity's true? Yeah, that's a good question because I think it's, I think it's not always where a lot of us are mm -hmm. uh, putting mm -hmm. our efforts. Um, I think a lot of it is lifestyle and sort of social mm -hmm. issues, um, you know, kind of sexual ethics mm -hmm. and things that they, I think those are the things they're struggling with. Uh, I think it's really difficult because it's become so normalized. I mean, our kids um, go to school with, uh, even, in, even in Texas, uh, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, they go to school with kids who are identifying as homosexual and, and transgender and things like that. It was just kind of a normal experience for them in a way, no, you know, quote unquote normal. And so then they have to be able to say that, you know, if they're going to be, you know, have their Christian convictions that those people are doing things that are wrong in a way. Mm -hmm. I think that's really difficult for them to sort of get there. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's where I think a lot of kids are struggling. So it's not so much evidence against the Christian faith for many. It's that they don't like some of the implications of the it Christian faith. It really could faith. be. Yeah, it okay. really could be. I like to ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And right. many atheists will say no, right. because it's not a matter of the evidence. It's a matter of, I really don't like what Christianity is yeah. asking me to do or asking me to believe. Or uh, It's really more of a preference yeah. than it is. In fact, how many of the objections that you come across, if they were true, would be fatal to Christianity? Not many. That's why I say, like, you know, when you when you really weigh out, so are there arguments that have some good? I mean, some responses mm -hmm. that are you know might be might be plausible. Yeah, but it's really that cumulative force of the case for Christianity that I think we that's where we have to live. And mm -hmm. and so often we just kind of get sort of tunnel vision on one argument and one response to it. But it's the cumulative force. So I do think that right there are some that would be devastating. So something like the problem of evil, mm -hmm. that could be devastating uh, for sure. Um, Is it devastating to the truth of Christianity or the, uh, I guess, plausibility for a person to think Christianity is true? Because does Christianity say there won't be evil? Does Christianity promise there won't be evil? You know, it seems to me that Christianity right, sure. is the answer to the problem of evil. So, right, right, right. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that too. But I guess if a maybe a, better, a little more careful way to say it is an argument from evil. Mm -hmm. If that ends up being a sound argument, then that would the conclusion of which is that God doesn't exist. Right. And so, of course, that's devastating. That's fatal to a Christian view. If you know, well, you have a chapter on on suffering yeah. and evil. How does that argument? Does that argument hold water to say that if evil exists, God can exist? I don't think. I think that's way too strong. Mm -hmm. And so that you know, it's often called the the logical problem of mm -hmm. evil. And I don't think that that is, um, and, and most atheists today will recognize that mm -hmm. that's just too strong. Mm -hmm. So it, it typically is put that there is um, this category of sort of evil that we call gratuitous mm -hmm. evil or mm -hmm. senseless evil, uh, evil for which God couldn't somehow have a justifying reason for allowing. 
And if that exists, that category of evil exists, and you might think of just like the really, really awful mm -hmm. stuff that we see on the evening news mm -hmm. or, or wherever. Um, but again, it, so it's sort of put in this, this is often called the evidential argument from evil. And I do think there are really good responses to it. Mm -hmm. And I think where I would come out is to say that um, to, to claim that God couldn't have a reason. Now, I, I'm going to recognize that I don't know. Mm -hmm. and, and if somebody, you know, comes to me and says, look at all these things that have happened, my first thing that I'm going to say to them is, I don't know why. Uh, but it doesn't follow from not knowing why that there isn't a why. Mm -hmm. And so I think that God... Um, I think there is good reason to believe that God has justifying reasons for the even the most heinous of evil actions and events in our world. That we but how can an atheist even complain about evil if there is no standard of good, which is what we mean by God's nature? Yeah, it kind of just depends if they do hold to a standard of good. So mm -hmm. I, think a, I think that's a big problem for the naturalist that's mm -hmm. going to sort of regulate or sort of rule out all sort of things that are you know, non-natural. And mm -hmm. so if morality, a moral standard is non-natural, then they've got a big problem on their mm -hmm, hands mm -hmm. uh, for the moral moral sorts of um, questions. But there there are atheists that are, you know, sort of Platonists or some, some mm -hmm. view like that that would hold to a moral standard. And for them, I think they can raise that sort of objection. Yeah, if Platonism is plausible yeah, but it's not but why would it be plausible <laughs> it's not i mean if as, as craig has put it i think he's right about this if there are say these floating virtues up there yeah. such as love why would that make me obligated to obey it yeah. rather than hate right if this is not a personal uh command from a personal righteous being who has created us and has authority over us why are any of us under any obligation to yeah. align our lives to these platonic floating virtues? Right. If there could be such a thing. If there it? are, and yeah, that's yeah. that's the big pill that one has to swallow. But honestly, if I was an atheist, that's probably the direction I'd go because I don't think it's plausible at all to think that there's no such thing as moral facts. Mm -hmm. But but when I you know think about that view, it's uh, to me it's just ad hoc. We're just helping ourselves to moral standards. Now you can do it. And so that it's not quite so simple to just say, hey, if you're an atheist, you can't believe in morality. Mm -hmm. that, that's too simple. But uh, you just have to sort of help yourself to it and sort of posit it. And then, uh, but I think that's, you know, problematic. Well, they can certainly believe in morality. Yeah. And of course, many of them do. They just can't oh, yeah. justify it yeah. without reference to an external standard. I think that's probably right. Yeah. A lot more with uh, Dr. Travis Dickinson, his book, Wandering Toward God, Finding Faith Amid Doubts and Big Questions. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the hiddenness of God. Why, if God exists and he all wants us to be saved, doesn't he just show up explicitly and say, you, here I am, believe in me. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. As we're entering this uh, Christmas season, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's, of course, a lot to be thankful for, a lot to be grateful for. We do live in a great country, despite some of the things that are going on. Uh, and we live in a country that at least has freedom, freedom of religion. We have to work to keep that. And I want to thank you for all you've done for us this past year. You know we're 100% donor supported. When we go to a college campus, we don't charge students a dime because you are providing the resources for us to go there. 
And we have a group of donors that have come together this year and they've pulled their resources to give us a $100,000 matching gift, which means any donations you give between now and the end of 2022 will be matched 100 or we will be matched 100%, in other words, doubled. So it's a great way to double your impact through us. Thank you for doing that. And I wanna point out that all of the donations that you give to crossexamine.org go 100% toward ministry, 0% toward buildings. We are completely digital, virtual. We don't, you don't come to us, we come to you. We go where the young people are and to, and, we try and provide them evidence, as you know. And you can see all this streamed on our YouTube channel. Every event we do on a college campus is streamed on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page, on uh, other platforms that we have, our website. So you can see it, and we can reach thousands of more beyond those who are just in the room. All right, back to my friend Travis Dickinson, his brand-new book, Wandering Toward God, Finding Faith Amid Doubts and Questions. And Travis, let's talk a little bit about the hiddenness yeah. of God. Uh, that is a perennial question. In fact, I think when atheists bring up arguments against God, typically those are that's one of the big two. The other big yeah. the other big one is evil, which yep. we just mentioned. Yep. But what why isn't God more obvious? You have a chapter in here about this. Yeah. Why isn't he? Yeah. Well, I think what we don't often ask is what would happen if he was more obvious? Could because could he be more obvious? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we should probably be a little terrified at that option. Right. Well, I if think, the scriptures are true, he has been more obvious in certain at times, certain times right. in certain places. Right. But also, the Bible says that, you know, his full obviousness is lethal. Mm -hmm. So we don't want that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it could be bad if he was mm -hmm. more obvious, mm -hmm. or at least bad in our experience. And so, but I think that's really kind of a, a way to get at this subject, is to ask, what would happen if God was more obvious? Would it create more belief? Maybe. I think that's probably right. But is that really what God is after? Is God really just after people believing sort of intellectually uh, that he exists? And I think the answer is clearly no in Scripture, mm -hmm. that he's not, uh, you know, I, I always think of this, I think a really clear picture of this and what I'm trying to get at is the way in which people were quick to follow Jesus, right? They loved seeing the, the miracles. They loved seeing the healings. It's like, let's go. This is awesome. And the minute he starts talking about discipleship, it's like, where did they all go? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so if that's, if Jesus, uh, sorry, if God is after not mere believers or people that are just wanting to see a show, which I think a lot of the folks in the, the first century there with Jesus were just after the show, like they just, mm -hmm. that's all they, they were kind of in it for. Um, what is he after then? Well, he's after faith, and he's after discipleship. He's after, right, he's after, he wants followers, genuine mm. followers that um, will commit their lives to, to making Jesus Lord of their lives. That's not accomplished well by fantastic displays, I think. I mean, I think that's just what we see in Scripture. It was really striking for me, kind of looking at, at um, the, the growth of the church in Scripture when I was wrestling with this issue, you don't see growth until Acts, really, right? It's sort of like you get all the miracles, and, and, and there's some miracles in Acts too, but those don't typically cause the church to grow. It was the preaching of the word. Mm, it, mm. Was, it was calling people to conviction, um, and that's where you have thousands of people in you know, uh, 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 you know, single moments and single events coming to Christ and becoming followers. And so if God was more 
obvious, it might create more believers, but it wouldn't necessarily create more followers. Mm. Now, we see that, I, I always think of the Exodus when that question comes up, because how many times did the right. people coming out of Egypt right. see all these fantastic <laughs> right. displays? If anybody should have faith, right. like they should they have faith. But yeah. And then Moses spends a couple of extra nights on the mountain, and suddenly they're worshiping the golden calf as yeah. if they didn't see anything. Yeah. Are we that fickle? We are that fickle. I, I know my heart is that fickle at times, where, uh, where it's, again, what really causes life change is not being wowed by some show. It just really mm -hmm. isn't. Um, now that can be helpful, and and you know you see some fantastic displays. You know something like the uh, uh, road to Damascus experience mm -hmm. with Paul, let's say. But that was like Paul was just ready to go. Like he was, he was, he he thought he was following God by mm. persecuting Christians, and then like having this experience of Jesus there, his eyes are blind. You know, all this sort of supernatural experience flips him 180 degrees and he was just ready to go. So I think, and, and many people give their testimony and there's some sort of crazy experience that they had that God really showed up, but those are the exception, mm. I think. Um, it, and, and it has to be for a heart that's ready to go, well, like it's ready a good, to It's follow. a good point you make that Paul thought he was following God, right. persecuting the church. Right. Then once he had that experience, he's still following God, right. just in a different direction. Right, right. right. Now, um, as James says, even the demons believe that God right, exists, but right. they tremble. So right. they intellectually know that God exists, right. but they don't trust in him. I always often try and, and, and make that distinction between belief that and belief in. Yes. You need maybe some evidence for belief that, obviously, but that doesn't get you to belief in. That doesn't right. get you to trust in. And when we're talking about faith here, we're talking about trust in, yeah. not just intellectual assent, because yeah. even the demons have that. Right. So that's not, and, and what would happen if God was more like a stalker where wherever you turned, you had some sort of uh, miraculous display of his power, yet your yeah. heart was turned against him? What would that do to us, Travis? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's sort of the point is, again, like God could be more obvious, but that should maybe terrify us. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it, if, if the sort of cosmic presence of God was just always there every time we're sort of going, like, unless we're made right with him, unless mm -hmm. we're reconciled to him, then we should be very terrified uh, of that possibility. And so again, it would, it would, I think I, that, that, that passage in James, like has just always sort of blown my mind that mm -hmm. even the demons believe mm -hmm. and I always add, you know, and so do a lot of Southern Baptists and so do a lot of, <laughs> they believe and they show up to church, you mm -hmm. know, Christmas and, and Easter. I don't see them like getting upset about the fact that we're talking about a virgin birth or somebody rising from the dead, but here's what they lack. They've never given their lives. I mean, there's many Southern Baptists that have, but, mm -hmm. um, need to make fun of my own tradition, but, um, <laughs> right. But the, there's many people that go to church that believe, but they've never placed their faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. Yeah. Now, what's your view on modern day miracles? I don't know if you get into this in the book, Wandering Toward Faith. I know Craig Keener, or Wandering Toward God, I should say. Um, I know Craig Keener has done some work on this. Yeah. Uh, what's your view on modern day miracles? Yeah, I think we have to take them case by case. Mm -hmm. I think there certainly can be evidence mm -hmm. sufficient enough to believe that a miracle has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's it can't just be a blanket sort of principle mm -hmm. that if somebody claims it, then I believe it, that settles mm -hmm, it kind mm -hmm. of thing. 
I think we have to look at, you know, the credibility of that person mm-hmm. and so on. But absolutely. I think mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see how someone can discount uh, the value of miraculous claims since that's mm-hmm. at the heart of our Christian beliefs. Now, miracles, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, have to be rare if they're going to get our attention. If they happened all the time, they wouldn't yeah. be miracles. Right. So we're not suggesting these things are ubiquitous. If they were, say the resurrection of Jesus would mean nothing. I mean, if people rose from the dead all the time, yeah. we'd go, who cares if Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. That happens all the right, time, right? right? right, right. It's got to be a rare event if right. it's going to say this is a special event that's indicating God really intervening yes. in this world to tell us something very important. That's right. Uh, so uh, the hiddenness of God has always been a fascinating subject for me, but yeah. I, I, I think you're right. Although some skeptics will say, well, that's just a cop-out, Travis. Travis, to cop out. Why doesn't God? I've been asking him yeah. to show himself to me, and I'm not resistant, Travis. Right. You know, they say that. Right, right. I have I have this, what, what do they say? It's non-resistant, non-belief. In other yeah. words, I'm not resisting. I'm open. I keep asking for a sign. I don't have it. How do you respond? Well, I think, again, you know, God is not uh, in the business of just sort of being the genie in the bottle, mm-hmm. and if we just say we want our three wishes and he's going to come through for us, um, God, and this is very consistent in the Christian tradition and throughout Scripture, is that God shows up when God shows up. You know, you just think of the book of Job, or mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is something I deal with in the book quite a bit, and something that I've, I think the book of Job is just so extraordinary uh, in so many in so many ways, and you, if anybody wanted God to show up, Job did, uh, and God does show up, but but you know at the end, and he and he sort of shows up in a way I think Job wasn't necessarily bargaining for, um, but God does show up and say, "Look, I'm here, uh, you know, I'm in charge, uh, and I'm good, and you can trust in me, even though you're going through uh, you know the the horrific uh, conditions that he is." But Again, I think you have to come to God on God's terms. It's his timing. And not the other way. He knows the end from the beginning, yeah. right? You have a chapter in here called The Virtue of Faith. What's that about? So I try to uh, describe. Uh, the book is definitely a book on doubt, but it's mm-hmm. not a book only about doubt. Because, mm-hmm. again, I don't, I don't want to overvalue doubt. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I think is really helpful to see is just what, what is faith? Like, we talk about this. But I don't think people have always a, uh, a good sort of definition of faith in their back pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, it's this sort of mysterious thing that just we get zapped with, apparently, for some people. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think of faith as uh, the, my sort of rough and ready definition is that faith is ventured trust. It's where we've sort of ventured our life on someone or something or venturing our life mm-hmm. a little bit on our chairs right now mm-hmm. in, this, in this building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got on an airplane to get here and I ventured my life on the mm-hmm. airplane to get here. I put my faith in it. And I think that what Christian faith is ultimately kind of at its core is that we have ventured our trust, our loyalty, our reliance on God. Mm. You know, it, it, it's often, I think, mistaken uh, when people say that, they say, well, I lost my faith. You know, they, they had faith yeah. or something. And I, I almost want to say to them, like, so? <laughs> Are you telling me because your psychology changed that God has somehow popped right. out of existence? Right. Or because your psychology has changed, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And you just brought up the airplane because I use that quite a bit on college campuses. Yeah. I'll say to people, you know, there are people who 
can't get on an airplane because they're scared to death. Yeah, that's right. Yet the evidence shows it's the safest way to travel. Right. So here they are allowing their psychology to overpower the evidence. Do we tend to do that when it comes to Christianity? We often allow our psychology, even psychology that has come to us through our culture, to get us to say that Christianity can't be true. Yet our psychology is not going to necessarily tell us the truth or falsity of Christianity. The evidence will. So we need to concentrate on the evidence because the evidence will let us know whether or not Christianity is true, not our psychology. And when we come back with uh, Dr. Travis uh, Dickinson, we're going to talk more about doubt and faith and how do you wander toward God so you can actually find him. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, right out of the gate in the new year, uh, I will be in New Orleans, Louisiana at a apologetics conference called Defend. All the details are on our website. And my guest, Dr. Travis Dickinson, will be there as well. Travis, you're going to be in New Orleans, right? That's right. Right after the first of the year? Yes, sir. What are you going to be doing? Uh, I'll be speaking uh, some and bringing a uh, group from my my school DBU uh, to as part of a course actually. So oh, yeah. all right, excellent. So anyone down near in the uh, southeast, anywhere near Norlands, Louisiana, <clears throat> I'll be there that weekend, and Travis will be there as well, January sixth, seventh, the eighth. I think I'm speaking at a church in Covington. More details on our website. If you want to check all that out, go to crossexamine.org, click on events. You will see calendar there. Now, we're talking to Travis Dickinson, brand new book, Wandering Toward God. Travis, you have a chapter in here called Asking the Big Questions. You have a couple of quotes. I love these quotes at the top of the chapter. One is from Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. And then from Peter Abelard, he says (laughs) this, constant and frequent questioning is the first key to wisdom for through doubting, We are led to inquiry, and by inquiry, we perceive truth. That's so profoundly true, and yet many Christians don't ask questions. That's right. Don't ask questions. Unpack that a little bit more for us. So, again, the the goal here, the destination is not doubt, but I do think that we all should, as a part of our Christian discipleship, Mm -hmm. as followers of Jesus, should be asking questions. I, I take very seriously, you know, Jesus in in uh, Matthew um, Matthew twenty two, where he says, uh, you know, he's asked, what's what's the what's the most important command? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about all the, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know, there's a lot of commands. Mm-hmm. So he's he's asked to boil it all down, and it's a challenge. And you know, so if he emphasizes one and neglects something else, then he's gonna, you know, they're gonna press him for that. But what he says is seemingly without, you know, uh, uh, skipping anything, uh, he just says, "Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, souls, and minds." And what's always been sort of funny to me is I memorized that verse. I know I did mm-hmm. as a high school student and never noticed that we're like part of that formula is that we were love God with our minds. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really rich uh, statement that, you know, people, whole books have been written about that and, and we could talk more about it. But um, I think at least part of what it is to, to love God with our minds is to ask questions mm-hmm. Um to approach God with a kind of intellectual curiosity. Um, but I always say this, and this is actually one of the things I think I've thought the most about since writing the book, that's, I just I just find this to be really a crucial piece, 
is that we're going to ask questions, but we shouldn't ask questions, I think, as skeptics. Hmm. Where, you know, because there's plenty, even in Matthew 22, you've got religious leaders asking Jesus questions, but but it's not like they really wanted the answers. Right, right. They're almost cynics. Yeah. yeah. They're trying it, to trap them. That's yeah. right. And, and so uh, I, I always give the story of my daughter um, when she was young, right? Uh, she, you know, kids just don't like to go to sleep for some reason. I, I love to go to sleep now, but uh, she just right. doesn't want to go to sleep. And so, we, you know, we come in and we say, okay, sweet time, you know, time for bed. And she says, why? And that's uh -huh. a question, yeah. right? But, uh, and then I, as a philosopher dad, I always tried to like give the an answer to the why questions. And so I would say, well, you need your rest and it makes tomorrow more fun. And you know, this kind of thing. And she says, why? Mm -hmm. And then she says, why again? And then whatever I say, mm -hmm. she's going to say, why again? She doesn't want the truth. I've, I've already given her a good answer. I think the first one was probably knock down, drag out kind of thing. She just doesn't want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And I think that really characterizes a lot of people who are supposedly seeking, you know, answers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're really just, it's kind of a smoke screen. They're mm -hmm. just, they're mm -hmm. asking questions, but they're never going to be satisfied with any answer you could possibly mm -hmm. give them. And so we don't want to, if we approach that way, of course, we're never going to find the truth. Mm -hmm. And so what, the way we, I think God wants us to approach him is with intellectual curiosity, but not as a skeptic, but notice, you know, with Matthew 22 again, in the posture of, of love, of lover of God, a seeker of God, um, that we'd be pursuing God in love. And so the, the best example I've got of this is, you know, teaching at DBU. I mean, it's every year, like these little couples, like, you know, form with, uh, you know, the freshman class, mm -hmm. people are, you know, and they can't bear to be apart for like five seconds. And they just want to sit there and talk about everything. And they're super curious about each other. And like that should characterize, uh, you know, they're loving each other with their minds in a way. And I think that's what should characterize us in our faith because, uh, right, even a marriage, I think, that doesn't have any intellectual curiosity, it, that's a marriage in trouble, I mm, think. Mm. And a faith that has no intellectual curiosity is a faith in trouble as well. Mm, mm. Yeah, there is something about the chase, too, going yeah. back to the hiddenness of right, God issue. Right. Uh, I mean, there has to be some intrigue and some curiosity uh, in order for us to, as fickle human beings to be interested. That's right. Right. If God were to reveal himself, well, you've already mentioned this, he revealed himself completely, we'd, we'd be burnt to a crisp. <laughs> right. But if he revealed himself too much, it might take away some of the intrigue. Yeah. And uh, I don't know who said this, but I think it's brilliant. It would be strange if an infinite God wasn't strange to us. Yeah. There are some things that we quite don't understand about God, quite obviously, right. but we shouldn't expect to understand everything, right. right? I mean, we're finite creatures. Right. The fact that we're in effect and the universe is in effect and the moral law is in effect and design is in effect and creation's in effect should get us to realize there has to be some kind of uncomposed cause. Yeah a self-existing cause that brought all this stuff into existence and keeps it going. Yeah. So we have all these effects. We're reasoning back to a cause. The question is, what is the nature of this being, particularly when it comes to the issue of love? Does he love us? Does he, right. does he care for us? And that's where Christianity, of course, uh, soars. Yeah. That's, that's what Christianity is all about. Yeah. He does love us and he comes to save us. Yeah. And the question to me is, will we trust? Will we place our faith in him? And when I think it's, we, we're fickle enough that if it's all spelled out for us, mm -hmm. if it's all just sort of there, obviously, then we we don't tend to trust in that situation. It's it's when it's sort of like 
I don't know. I'm a little <laughs> nervous here. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's one reason why I put the title of the book is Wandering Toward God, because I think it it is that it's it's not an aimless kind of wandering. It's a it's an intentional wandering, but it's not straight. It's not like easy. We don't always have like the points sort of like really mm. clear to us. We kind of have to go in the circuitous way uh, and and make our way through it and just ask the deep and difficult questions. And it gets a little messy, honestly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have those doubts, but as we lean in, uh, the hope is. And again, this is just my own testimony. As we lean in and find truth, find answers, my goodness, we just grow in our faith. So the very thing that we're worried about often with doubt is that we're going to lose our faith. What we see is that when we lean into it, we come to a place of greater faith. What are some of the questions that we ought to be asking as Christians? Yeah, I I think, man... Or even someone seeking to become a Christian. Yeah, know, that's you know, right. Open to it. I, I ultimately, I think the question has to be, is it true? And is there uh-huh. reasons to believe that it's true? I think that we're all so different that mm-hmm. I think that there's no, like, you know, 10 reasons that you got to, you know, 10, 10 questions you got to ask. We probably could come up with a pretty good list if we mm-hmm. tried to. But I find that people are just in so many different places. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, oftentimes, depending on where their background is, right. if they're coming from a different religious tradition mm-hmm. or a very secular tradition, let's say. Um, but I think the big questions, um, you know, reasons to believe that God exists, mm-hmm. reasons to believe that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, mm-hmm. since it really comes down to First uh, Corinthians 15 again, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, um, reasons to think that scripture is trustworthy and reliable, uh, how to how to uh, address the concern about there's so much evil and suffering mm-hmm. in the world, the hidden, uh, you know, a lot of things we've already sort of uh, touched on a bit. Uh, I think those are the big questions. And then again, like, is is Christianity good? Because mm. we we tend to talk most in apologetics about if whether or not it's true, uh, but talk about whether or not it's good. Well, how do beautiful. we define good? Is it good? Yeah, I think it's good. <laughs> I think it, you know, like I said, I think this was my experience growing up in, in this ministry of seeing these men come in broken by sin and, and uh, addiction and and the, the, the goodness, you know, the sort of flourishing that, that occurred where these guys would like gain weight. Uh, you know, they, they would sometimes do much weight, but you know, they would, they would be happy. They'd uh-huh. be laughing. Uh-huh. They'd just brighten up. I mean, uh-huh. it's just this sort of change in their sort of, you know, humanity almost in a way. And I think that's the power of the gospel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You have a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I love. He says, now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Yes. yes. We, we always think that, well, we're just the ones that have this measure of trust, this measure of faith, and yeah. say the atheist doesn't. Seems to me, in light of the evidence, that's why we wrote the book, I don't have enough faith to right, be an atheist, right. right? There's so much evidence for Christianity that it would take more trust to disbelieve it than to believe it. Absolutely. Uh, when you really take a, a step back and you look at and I think you, you 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 hit on the two main questions, Travis, and that is, does God exist and did Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah. If those two things are true, Christianity is true. Right. Right. Now, there are details to fill in, as right. you mentioned, and there are objections like evil and hiddenness of God and all this. But evil does not disprove God. It can't. can't disprove God. We wouldn't even know what evil was unless, <laughs> unless God did exist because he's the standard. And we've already talked a little bit about the hiddenness. And I I think you're right. So many of the objections that people have about Christianity, even if they were right about them, 
don't mean Christianity's fault, yeah, do right. they? That's right. That's, that's and that's easy. where I think it's a, the journey of the Christian life is continuing to ask mm-hmm. those questions, too. I think yes. that all of us should be pressing in and continuing to ask in order to know God uh-huh. better. I mean, right. to love Him with our minds. I think that's, that's the picture that we, we never stop this because we're never going to get it all figured out. Nope. And that's, that's part of the, the journey is that we would continue to love him. We would continue to sort of fall in love with him mm-hmm. by having intellectual curiosity and, and pressing in. And as we find those answers, um, right, we, we know him better. We have knowledge. We have truth. Travis, what's your website so people can learn more about so you? TravisDickinson.com. Okay. Um, and I, I blog there from time to time. And, All right. Yeah. I call the blog The Benefit of the Doubt. Oh, beautiful. So. Okay, good. Well, thanks so much for this book, Wandering Toward God, Finding Faith Amid Doubts and Big Questions. Thanks so much, Travis. Yeah, you bet, Frank. I and, appreciate it. appreciate your ministry. Oh, thank you. It's uh, TravisDickinson.com. Check it out. Get the book, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget, as we come up to the end of the year, we have a $100,000 matching gift. Any money you give up to $100,000 will be matched. Also, we have some new online courses coming on after the first of the year. Uh, Scott Klusendorf with regard to the issue of life and abortion and a new one from Stephen C. Meyer, Return of the God Hypothesis. You want to be a part of it, go to crossexamine.org, check on online courses, and we'll see you here next week.